Hi, this is Tom Field, Vice President of Editorial with Information Security Media Group. I'm giving you a tale from incident response today. I'm talking specifically about the current state of web attacks. It's my pleasure to be speaking with Mike Smith. He's the CSERT Director with Akamai. Mike, it's a pleasure to talk with you today. Why, thank you. So as I said, the topic up front is the current state of web attacks. Tell me, what are the kinds of attacks that you've been seeing over this past year? So there's a wide variety, and it's really interesting for us just in being in the service provider space because a lot of times when I'm looking at attacks, just from what I do on a day-to-day basis, it's stuff that we prevent, so you see small traces of it, right? So you might see, oh, here's a reconnaissance activity, or, hey, here's a lot of um, login attempts. Here's somebody with a scraper, or even here's a DDoS, right? So you'll see itty-bitty pieces of it. You might see 24 requests that are blocked, you know, something small like that. As far as overall trends that we've seen, a big one for us is login abuses. So I've got a wide variety of customers they're using what we call rate controls, so you just count the number of requests per second from a source IP address, and when it exceeds a threshold, you cut it off. Well, we've got lots of customers that have this set up, and they've got it set up only to count login requests, right? So you can scope it down. So you say only count path to login, and only if there's um, actually you know login information there. We're seeing lots of that activity simply because somebody can go and fish the user on you know, a small e-commerce site or a social media site. You know, they, they will actually go out and fish the user credentials that way and then check to see if the user reused those credentials across multiple websites, including their financial websites. Okay. Seeing some things that are just you know, low-impact, high-frequency type events, um, scrapers and scanners fit in there, um, in that they send a volume of traffic but for the most part, they're either checking for vulnerabilities to see if any known vulnerabilities exist, or they're grabbing information. So one that makes me laugh somewhat in the financial services space is scraping for stock rates or interest rates or just com- kind of a cross between competitive intelligence and um, feeding economic projections. There's one organization out there. They go out and they scrape a wide variety of websites, and they're looking for things that feed in consumer price index. So what is the price of a gallon of milk in all these different countries? And then use that to feed you know, what's the cost of living comparison between those different countries. But they also do the same thing. What's the rates that our competitors have? What are stock prices? How do we jump in, grab stock prices, and then, feedback to mobile applications. You know, there's a whole bunch of different ways that people are consuming lots of content on websites that you know they're just consuming a lot more volume than they actually need. There's this other piece, which is DDoS. We haven't seen as much um, DDoS, at least in financial services, as we have in a while. And a couple couple things that, that uh, make that statistic happen. Um, one is just we had a large campaign in 2012 and 2013 that tipped all the stats. Um, But there's another thing where organizations are getting better at defending themselves, so it's not as lucrative for the attackers to go launch large DDoS attacks, at least against financial services. So, Mike, when you look at these attacks, how do you see them being launched, not just against banking institutions, but against other organizations as well? 
So it starts a lot with reconnaissance, right? A good attacker knows what their target is. So anything as simple as loading up a tool, say Burp Suite, one of the web application scanners, and scanning the target knowing what the exposed surface is. And typically what you're doing is looking for things that are forms, things that are publicly available, things that you don't need to log in to get to. So typically you're looking at a search function, so a website search, branch office locator, something with a database behind it, anything where you can get a quote. So say insurance, where you get a quote, so you put in a little bit of PII. There's a, kind of an intermediate step. And at the end you say, oh, yeah, you could save so much on you know, life insurance or health insurance or whatever it is that you need. So you're looking at things like that that are publicly available, not behind a login wall, that are a form. Okay? And then you start from an attacker's perspective. You look at, okay, well, what are the inputs into that um, application? Looking at the actual form itself, is there any hidden data? There's a whole bunch of steps in there. But it all starts with being probed by a scanner, by some kind of spider, or by a web application scanning tool, and then that leads to subsequent attacks. Okay, um, So we see lots of those. Most of the time, we're just going to block those, and it's already set up with a policy. Just say, oh, yeah, if it's, uh, yeah, if it's a, if it's a um, particular user agent, block that. If they exceed a particular volume of requests, go ahead and block that. And that catches a lot of that just pre-attack activity and makes it go away, and you won't actually see the attack come in later, simply because the attackers realize that the, the target's defended and they won't go in and, and try to hit it. Mike, what size organizations and even what regions in the world do you see to be the most attractive for some of these increasingly sophisticated attacks? It varies a lot. So one of the things that I've done with my team is we set up monitoring for some of our customers, and we, we call it the Smith algorithm internally because um, <laughs> I, I developed it, and it's, it's an internal joke. But what we do is we try to monitor across various industries and various geographies. So, for instance, I've got banking in Southeast Asia. I've got banking in North America. I've got banking in Northern Europe. And each one of these has a different pattern of attacks and a different set of attackers that are actually trying to, to hit those particular sites. Southeast Asia is really interesting to me in that there are lots of small micropayment services that are being established inside of Southeast Asia. And some of them are mobile applications. Some of them are friend-to-friend payments. Some of them are utility payments. There are a whole bunch of really different weird micropayment services that are standing up, but they're going and functioning like a, a services aggregator where you go to this third party, literally this third party, you give them your, your credentials, they log into your bank's website, and sometimes they use the facilities in the bank's website to actually withdraw money and make that payment to somebody else. So what we'll see with a lot of our, our Southeast Asia banking customers is a completely unknown service stands up and suddenly is sending a lot of requests to that to that customer's website. And we have to go in and triage, well, is this service a fraud service or is this a business partner for the bank? Is it 
you know, just somebody who's a complete scam and is ripping off their users. What exactly is going on there? Meanwhile, inside of North America, you've got a lot of the account takeover issues, um, and we see those quite a bit. You've got the regular scrapers. You've got the vulnerability scanners. It's a more mature kind of attack environment, right, where you've got good defenses that are set up, and you also have attackers that are used to attacking these things because they do it day in and day out. And then inside Northern Europe, we don't see a lot of direct attacks against financial services customers. We did have a large chunk of DDoS in the Netherlands, all associated with the spam house cyber bunker kind of thing. We do see some login abuses inside, especially Northwest Europe. It's kind of interesting to me because there's not a lot of stuff that's very, very overt. A lot of stuff that's really, really small, little traces and, and following breadcrumbs. So, Mike, these attacks all make plenty of news, but what do you see as the specific impact on the individual targets as well as, in the case of financial services, the industry as a whole? It really goes back to why does a financial services organizations have a website? Okay? And it usually comes down to this is how you bring in new customers, especially if you have a, a B2C play, right, where you're looking at, marketing to individuals and using your website as for actual enrollment or to actually make a sale, right? So insurance fits into there very, very well. Some of the small microfinance stuff or peer-to-peer payments, that fits into that model. So that's, you know, you're using your website to actually generate income for you. It's a lot more like what I would expect for a profile for a retail site, right, or e-commerce site in that you've got this kind of this marketing effort, you're looking at basically conversion rate is your big metric, and that has a set of attacks around it, right? So availability is the first one that people think of where because you are interested in conversions, if somebody can disrupt the site, then that directly impacts the amount of gross income that you have coming in, okay? There's the other group of organizations where they use their website for customer care. It's the most cost-effective way to service your customers, and as a result, your costs are cheaper, and so you either increase your margin or um, decrease the price of your services to your customers. Okay, A couple different ways you could do that. But in that case, what happens is that you have alternatives. Um, banking is a great example where If the bank website is down, you can use the phone line, you can go into a branch office, you can go to an ATM, and each one of these has a different cost associated with it. But what you'll see is that attacks against online banking in in a wide variety of ways will indirectly impact the costs for that bank to do service. So it's a little, little bit different model. And then you have some websites that do both of these. So they're both an income generator and a way to service your customers. And so you're looking at, how, you know, what does disruption do? What is the direct cost of building security controls with the indirect cost of controls because of reduced efficiency, a whole bunch of other things, you know, in there. So there's an impact, but a lot of that impact is going to be indirect. Unless it's the retail model where you're selling directly to the public, you're not going to be able to tell what, well, you can to to an extent. You're not going to have a direct cost, which is easy to measure. Mike, what are some of the warning signs that an attack might be imminent or coming? 
a lot of it is prep, where you see this reconnaissance happening. There's another piece in there, which is that um, information sharing. Um, and we'll talk about information sharing here in just a minute. But it always is bad to be the first person, right? Nobody ever wants to be the first person to attack because you don't know necessarily a lot about what it is the attackers do. But the more targets that that particular attacker has attacked, the better knowledge base we have just as an industry on who they are, what they look like, i.e., what are their IOCs, indicators of compromise, um, what's the traffic signature they send you, and what are their TTPs, tactics, techniques, and procedures, or how is it that they do what they do? And so the more people get attacked or the more times you get attacked, the better this knowledge base is. And you can share with other people so that they can look out for it. So as you get smarter about this and have this bigger knowledge base, you can know what exactly to look for. Or more importantly, if you see one particular set of activity, you know what the context is relatively well. And you can go look for other associated activity that maybe you didn't catch. So there's this kind of loop that my team does where we start out with, here's an indicator. Let's look at the context around that indicator. Right? What's the other associated traffic? Out of that, we'll find other indicators. Go look for those indicators in the traffic. Find additional incidents or just events that happened look for the context around that. And you basically loop through this four or five, maybe a dozen times, and you get a good picture of who's the attacker, what are they trying to do, what other things do you need to look for. And so as you iterate through this little intelligence cycle, you're getting more and more information that actually helps you detect stuff when it first starts. Well, final question for you. Based on what you've learned in your research, what advice do you offer to organizations to fundamentally defend themselves better? So information sharing is huge. Sometimes I have heartburn with how people use the phrase information sharing simply because they don't actually qualify what it is, right? Really what you're doing is sharing ISCs, sharing TTPs, sharing just the overall concept. And what's most important is you get contacts with your peers inside of competitors, inside of you know, other industry contacts, I think there's been a big shift that, that's actually really good for me, uh, or I think it's good, in that uh, financial services organizations are realizing that their business partners also need to know this information. So we've, we've seen sharing back, and people need to be able to trust their vendors and give them information, say, you know, give information to me, and I get, I get a lot of information from my customers, and I share a lot back to them. But they need to understand that I'm not going to turn around and give that to a sales guy who's going to go pitch them. There's kind of a gentleman's agreement, and there's several NDAs, several ways to do NDAs for sharing communities. But the big thing for me is that information sharing or threat and intelligence sharing is a hub-and-spoke model, and that's where the ISACs fit in, where people contribute to a central hub. The hub works as a data broker, shares out to all of the members of that community. And there's one model there, especially when that hub is connected to 
things like NKIC, law enforcement, the intelligence community, uh, lots of good information going that way. And then information sharing is also a peer-to-peer -peer activity where it's, hey, I know this person at this other organization, and so I want a informal, off-the-record, what's your opinion on this? Because I'm seeing this type of activity. Have you seen that? And did you say, oh, yeah, that's chunk, or was that actually relevant, or, oh, yeah, that's relevant, and here's another set of indicators and TTPs that I have around that, and please use those. Okay, and where you find other ones, share them back with me. So information sharing is huge. I've had a lot of just threat briefs for customers, for prospects, for the public at large. Um, one of the things that I've started doing with my team is Perth Theater, so North America, Financial Services, Europe, and APJ. We're doing a webinar once a quarter to say, hey, out of the past quarter, these are the main things that we saw attackers do, and here's what we recommend for protection. Right? And even if it's not directly related to products or anything else that we normally do, it's still things that we've actually had to respond to. A good example would be DNS hijacking, right? where we've had numerous incidents. Um, we had one during Thanksgiving that resulted in a defacement of that. Um, 40 or 50 different sites that were defaced when an ad network had their DNS hijacked and, and sent to a different server, and that server started sending defacement, just simple JavaScript defacements. You know, I'm not, I'm not a registrar. I don't sell domains. I don't lock domains. But a set of recommendations at that time was go ahead and lock your domains, and here's how you go do that. We get really a lot of value out of sharing information like that with our customers, and, and they also share back, right? So I get TTPs, I get IOCs, I turn those into WAF rules, uh, push those WAF rules out for all of my customers, and everybody gets safer and smarter. Mike, it's great insight. Thank you so much for taking time to speak with me today. Yeah, no problem. Thank you. The topic has been the current state of web attacks. I've been talking with Mike Smith. He's CSERT Director with Akamai. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Tom Field. Thank you very much.